Reformer John Calvin wrote that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. Men are forging gods at will. My name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number three in the current series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. The title of today's episode is, The God Who Hates Dancing. Well, this may be hard for some to understand in the age where there is liturgical dancing that takes place in the church, but the joke goes, why do Mennonites say sex before marriage is wrong? The answer, because it can lead to dancing. (laughs) Well, I grew up attending a denomination of the Mennonite church called Mennonite Brethren. It was on the liberal end of the Mennonite spectrum. What I mean by this is that by comparison, the not-quite-Amish Mennonites are on the other end of the spectrum. The Mennonite brethren hold to the core beliefs of the Mennonite denomination, or all of them, adult believers' baptism and pacifism and those sort of things, but they don't adhere to many of the cultural-type beliefs. Women wearing head coverings, dressing plainly, canning their own food, and the men must farm or build furniture. Anyway, if it is possible for environmental factors to eventually affect one's DNA, then I certainly have the Mennonite gene. (laughs) My mother grew up in what sounds like a similar Mennonite church to the one that I grew up attending. It was relatively liberal, like my mom was even allowed to play the saxophone of all things. (laughs) My dad's side, my father's family, was part of a much more traditional old Mennonite church tradition. Like you didn't give engagement rings, you gave uh, watches with black leather straps um, as a, an example of the culture. But my entire ancestral line on both sides of my family can all be traced exclusively back to the beginnings of the Anabaptist, you know, Amish and Mennonite movement of the 16th century in Switzerland. They were all what the people called Taufers, which is German for dunkers, because they believed in immersion baptism as an adult rather than automatic automatic baptism being sprinkled as an infant. Well, several of my ancestors were Amish and Mennonite bishops. They all eventually left Switzerland for America because of religious persecution. It was tough to make a living there, especially when they would take your, your home and your farm. Well, I don't ever recall any of the pastors of the Mennonite church I attended ever speaking about dancing. All I knew is that it was something my mom and dad were never allowed to do when they were growing up. Because if dancing wasn't a sin itself, it would lead to sin. So, it might as well be a sin. Certainly, at least my dad believed it was a sin, and that was the impression that I had growing up. Now, If the movie Footloose is coming to mind about now, it probably should. There's a lot of parallels to that. Dancing was something that people in the world did. I never had the courage when I was young to talk to my dad about the subject. It was one of those black and white issues that I was just supposed to inherently know about. Like, you know when you're hungry, 
you know when you gotta pee, and you know that you shouldn't dance. Well, when I was in junior high school, in a moment of temporary confusion, it is probably the awakening of hormones, who knows, I asked my mom about going to a, a junior high dance. She explained how my dad thought dancing was wrong and how upset he became when my older brother and sister would attend dances. Wanting to be a good kid, mom's answers were all the reasons that I needed not to attend a dance at that stage of my life. When I was a freshman in high school, there was a dance that, you know, all my friends <laughs> were going to. So I spoke to my mom about attending it. She again explained about the family policy on dances, the origins of that policy, and what I could expect my dad to say if I were to go. However, mom said that if I really wanted to go to see what a dance was like, she would let me. I went, and besides being an awkward and introverted freshman at my first dance, I was miserable with guilt the entire time. I felt like a hopeless sinner, <laughs> standing in the midst of a swirling eddy of debauchery. <laughs> the next day, I remember a few short and bristly words from my dad about attending the dance, and then being shunned by him, getting the silent treatment and scowls for the rest of the day. I interpreted his mostly nonverbal messaging to be that he was very disappointed in me at the highest levels. I also remember that he was not entirely thrilled that my mom said that it was okay for me to go. Stern-sounding words were uttered that day. Well, this bad experience left large impressions on me. The biggest one was that my dad really thought that his son had knowingly and intentionally committed a sin. My interpretation of what was happening was that my dad was manifesting God's own displeasure with me. I'm sure my dad felt somehow that he had failed as a father to raise up his child in the ways of the Lord. Well, I don't blame my dad for any of what happened. His beliefs about dancing were based on a multi-generationally built and supported false doctrine. Probably one which had been handed down for literally hundreds of years. Except for succumbing to the overwhelming temptation and peer pressure of attending the prom in high school and dealing afterwards with the miserable guilt of having done so, <laughs> that freshman dance was the last one I attended. I adopted my dad's belief that dancing, at least with other people, was a sin. I say dancing with other people because, of course, every churched person knows the story of David worshiping God by dancing naked in the streets of Jerusalem. Well, being a musical guy who's always appreciated a good beat, I must confess to occasionally having acquiesced to the occasional beat that took possession of my very being and busting out a move or two in the privacy of my own home in my youth. I figured, what could it hurt? It's not like it was the forbidden pre-fornication mating dance of the pagans that was taking place at the high school in the gym, but I still felt guilty and ashamed and always made sure I was at home alone and 
Unlike David, I was at least always partially clothed. Now, fast forward to my own kids' teenager years. I thought that I had spiritually matured to the point where I realized, the, realized that dancing was not a sin. Angela, my wife, and I had attended a very grace-centered church for a couple of years, so I knew all about there being no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. But, like they say, using marijuana leads to using heroin. I still understood dancing to be something that, in the hands of the weak or immature, could be a gateway act that could lead to the sin of fornication. However, that would be a matter of the heart of the individual involved. I did know that. I did not want my kids to grow up with the same oppressive ideas about an activity that I now realized as an adult could simply bring about innocent pro-social pleasure. My adult views on dancing were put to the test. My wife and I and our three kids had become a part of a homeschool community of people who, although made up of Christians, obviously could not trace their Mennonite and Amish roots back to the 16th century Anabaptist movement in Switzerland. These Gentiles <laughs> had no problem with dancing. In fact, they had organized what was called a Civil War dance. These dances were designed for not just youth, but the entire family to get together and socialize as they performed Civil War-era ballroom-type group dances. By the way, I am totally aware of the current non-PC nature of the term Civil War dance. They still go on, but some who are concerned about such things call them something different. Anyway, it was quickly clear that I still had a big problem with attending a dance and allowing my children to do so. This was, even though it was thoroughly explained to me by my wife, Angela, that no one would be dancing as partners. There could not be a more innocent form of dancing than like ballroom dancing with your family. Every one of my three kids' friends and their families were going to be there at this dance. Well, I finally gave in and I agreed to go when my wife said that I would not have to dance myself. Well, sure enough, the days just kept ticking by like they always have, and the Saturday of the Civil War dance came. I remember the tension I felt in every muscle of my body as I painted on a false smile and greeted our friends in the large room. I loved these guys. Many were dressed in Civil War period clothing. Everyone seemed happy. Well, what was I doing? I scanned the room for a place to sit where it wouldn't be noticed that I wasn't dancing. The sounds of the music, composed around 160 years ago, filled the room. People had been instructed on the dance moves they were to make, <laughs> and they took off happily stomping, circling, crossing, and swirling around the room without me. I decided that Moving around the room might provide the illusion that I wasn't sitting out every dance. This tactic was not effective. The peer pressure to dance was extreme and intensifying as the evening progressed. People made comments to me as they assumed I wasn't participating because I didn't think I could keep a beat or dance. 
They assured me that they also had two left feet, and there would be nothing to be embarrassed about. You know, they had obviously never seen the moves I performed in the privacy of my bedroom as a kid to the Beach Boys surfing USA. <laughs> I guess we can all thank God for that. <laughs> it just wasn't the time or place to include anyone else in the theological debate and existential struggle that was going on inside me. I felt bad not to be participating with my kids, showing them that dad could have fun too. I felt terrible not to be sharing a happy experience with my wife, who looked so beautiful and joyful on the dance floor. I felt embarrassed about being the only person in the room not dancing. But at the same time, I felt guilty that I was even attending such an event. I felt shame thinking that I was compromising my beliefs and engaging in something that I thought still had the possibility of being a sin. At the same time, I felt even guiltier that I was a hypocrite who really wanted to dance. While everyone else was just having fun, <laughs> I was having a literal come-to-Jesus meeting crisis in my mind. I figured out that while I no longer viewed dancing as being a sin for others, that for me, personally, it still clearly was. Why? Because I somehow tied it not to being pleasing to God if I were to do something that I thought was a sin for such a long time. I had avoided dancing for years because I thought it would go against what God wanted. I thought if I were to dance that night because of my own carnal desire to jump in and twirl around to the beat of the music or peer pressure when there was any possibility of it being displeasing to God and affecting my relationship with Him, it would in fact be a sin for me to choose to do so. As this conversation in my mind continued, the Holy Spirit made it clear to me that I was acting in the role of the weaker brother in regard to dancing. I was a Christian who, at least in part, was depending on my own actions to be righteous, instead of completely understanding and depending on the grace of God and what Jesus had done for me, the work or the actions that He had already taken. It wasn't that I was refusing to eat meat sacrificed to idols because I thought it would be a sin to do so, as was the issue with the Christians in Corinth. And it wasn't that I thought I needed to be circumcised to be a Christian, as they came to wrongly believe in the church in Galatia. It was that I thought that to be pleasing and acceptable to God that night, I needed to abstain from dancing. To be clear, I didn't come to believe dancing was a sin through anything that I ever read in the Bible. I didn't believe it was a sin because the act of dancing is morally wrong. I believed it was a sin because of a religious cultural tradition that was handed down to me by my father. He believed it and went to his grave with it because of a tradition that was imposed and handed down to him. Part of what made up my image of who God is was based on my belief that dancing 
would offend him. If I were to dance, God would be disappointed in me. Ignoring his desires for my life, I believed I would find myself in less than an optimum standing with him. Like Scottish 1924 Olympic gold medalist runner Eric Little believed that it would offend God to run on Sunday, I believed to please God and remain in good standing with him, I needed to refrain from dancing. Remaining in good standing with God is important, not just for eternity's sake, but for this life also. I could not expect his favor in this life if I were to dance in this life. The God that I held in my mind may decide to discipline me for my footloose and fancy-free transgression. I could not take communion with a clear conscience having purposefully transgressed on the dance floor. All these things contributed to the image of God that I prayed to and worshipped in total sincerity. He was a God that hated dancing, among many other behaviors. He was the same God who hated wearing bell-bottom jeans and letting my hair grow over the collar of my shirt when I was a kid. Well, I wish I had a happier ending to the story of that evening. I wish that I could say that I responded to the freedom that I have in Christ by jumping to my feet (laughs) and dancing like nobody was watching. But I didn't. Although the Holy Spirit was advocating in my mind for the freedom that comes from relying on what Jesus had done for me on the cross, because of the hard wiring, because of the synapses in my brain that needed to be rewired, the cumulative guilt of many generations of my forefathers prevailed that night. But God continued to mature my faith, and I hope he continues to do that. It was the truth contained in scripture that eventually set me free from the bondage of and allegiance to the God that hates dancing. Eventually, Angela and I would even take dance lessons. (laughs) And now together, we gleefully and without guilt cut the occasional rug. (laughs) Why do I tell the story of this very personal struggle? Is it, to, <laughs> is it to let, you know, 7 billion people in the world know what a goof I am? <laughs> no, uh, but now you do. It's to illustrate how complex the issues are that are going on inside of us. Things that no one else, even those close to us, even our spouses or our closest friends, may have a clue about. God alone knows us even better than we know ourselves. He knows the wiring of our brains and what circumstances caused that wiring. He knows what we are currently going through. He knows the right time for His Holy Spirit to have a conversation with our spirit. And He alone sees the day that each of us, according to His timing, will finally understand his truth better, and take hold of something that he wants us to learn. It would be my worst nightmare if, in response to this podcast series, someone who's listening were to judge and write off anyone else as being an inauthentic child of God or a non-Christian when that person professes 
to believe in Jesus only because they outwardly appear to be engaged with a Christian false god right now. God alone can make that judgment. Although one may be spiritually immature, in confusion, or even in rebellion against God now, we don't know what God has in store for them in the future. Life is a journey, and we don't start the journey out as the same person that we finished the journey as. As we'll discuss later, there are a few practical reasons for discerning whether or not it's seeking to follow Jesus or not. But none of those reasons are so that we may pass final judgment on someone's soul or allow ourselves to give up on them. The Apostle Paul had instruction for how to handle the situation in which someone is straying from sound biblical teaching. And it doesn't include writing them off as an enemy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul wrote this, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and don't keep company with them, that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And then in Galatians 6, verses 1 to 3, Paul wrote this, Brethren, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you do not also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. All have sinned and fallen short. Although I will be pointing out much about what's taking place in modern Christian culture that is not biblically based, the purpose of this series is not to sit in judgment on those who are engaging in such practices. It's to challenge you, my dear listening friend, to know God better by being committed to and pursuing the authentic truth found in the Bible, along with me. Then, to encourage you to examine your own beliefs, considering the authentic truth, and respond appropriately to it as you're able, and as the Holy Spirit continues to reveal the authentic truth to you in His Word. That is it for this episode. Please join me next time when, Lord willing, I'll talk about how false Christian gods are custom-made to order, and unfortunately end up seeming like a perfect fit for us. Until then, may God bless you richly. (laughs) May you dance like nobody's watching. (laughs) And Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (music) 